As we learn of the various ways COVID-19 can affect our bodies and our health, we find out more about the virus, and sometimes about ourselves. And the troubles of COVID-19 in the brain have led to numerous questions. We have Mark McLean back with us to answer as many of them as he can based on his experience and research. He's a resident in the Department of Neurosurgery at Dalhousie University and has been both examining the effect of SARS-CoV-2 on the brain and publishing his observations and research theories. He's got some great responses and perhaps a few ideas that can get all of us thinking about the future. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and this is the Super Awesome Science Show SAS class on COVID-19 and the brain. Last week, Mark McLean gave us a wealth of information on our current knowledge of COVID-19 in the brain. But there was one question that seemed to be on many of your minds regarding the neurological effects of the virus and how that may interfere with something we all take for granted. Now, before I get to that question, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, I would suggest you go back now and do so. You will learn so much and realize how much more work is necessary to be able to get all the answers about the neurological symptoms of COVID-19. Besides, it will also help set you up nicely for some of the questions we're going to be asking. Class is now in session. Here's your first and most popular question. What's the deal with the loss of taste and smell? This is a really interesting finding. The virus might be binding directly to ACE2 receptors, which we know are expressed on the epithelium of the upper respiratory tract, so for example, in the nose. That binding of ACE2 receptors on the epithelium in the nose can be damaging, and that might be enough to cause problems with taste and smell. Another theory that's been proposed is that the virus might be passing through the top of the nasal passage at the base of the brain or base of the skull through what's called the cribriform plate. Infection of the olfactory nerve could lead to a lack of sense of smell. And we know from prior studies looking at different respiratory viruses, including SARS-CoV-1, that the virus can infect that olfactory nerve and those sensory neurons. The important thing to note here is that we might be seeing loss of taste and smell, but if the virus can access the brain through the top of the nasal passage, and most people are getting infection through the airway, why don't patients develop more severe brain disease? And I think what this comes down to is that there are types of cells that live in the brain, such as microglia, that actually provide a natural defense system by cleaning the neurons out, so to speak, and essentially acting as our own immune response to fight infection. Another question that we had related to insomnia. You mentioned it last week, but some people would like to have a little bit more information about what is known on that front and whether there's anything we can do about it. So last week we mentioned that infection with SARS-CoV-2 results in a general immune response, a lot of widespread inflammation throughout the body. And when patients get sick and they develop such a severe immune response, it's common to see changes in their level of consciousness. So that can include development of confusion, depression, anxiety, or even coma in some severe cases. But the concept or, or question about insomnia and discussion of the circadian rhythm is an interesting one. There was a study that was published in a prestigious journal called The Lancet earlier this year. They found that patients who developed acute infection, that meaning short-term infection, developed confusion, 
depression, anxiety, problems with memory, and as you previously mentioned, insomnia. And that the incidence or occurrence here was about a third of cases, which is actually quite high. And they found that one of the common treatments for SARS-CoV-2 infection, which is steroids or dexamethasone, was found to actually worsen these psychological symptoms. And that's an unfortunate side effect. Thankfully, it's rare. The one other thing I would mention here is that after the acute short-term infection resolve, rates dropped off to about 10% longer follow-up. So it meant that these, in most cases, seem to be transient. And essentially, they concluded that if patients are infected with SARS-CoV-2 and that follows a similar course to the prior human coronavirus infections that we know about, the patients should usually recover without experiencing long-term mental illness. On that note of insomnia, one question has come in about the use of cannabidiol or CBD as a possible means for treatment to help people relax and to help get some sleep. Cannabidiol has been proposed to potentially decrease the immune response and also potentially decrease the expression of viral receptors. So those receptors that SARS-CoV-2 combine to. However, any medications that are going to be used as potential treatment need to be tested uh, rigorously in controlled trials before we can be sure. A medication like cannabidiol could be promising in terms of uh, having a therapeutic benefit, but we need to study it further. Does age play a role in the risk for neurological problems associated with COVID-19? So we, we believe this is the case. The risk factors for developing neurological symptoms and signs with COVID are similar to those that predispose to severe lung disease. So it's a similar pop patient of populations who to be, appear to be at risk. And that includes patients with problems with the blood vessels and immune system, those that are older, those that have high blood pressure, those that have cardiovascular disease or specifically high cholesterol, and those with diabetes. Those are also, coincidentally, the risk factors for blood-brain barrier dysfunction. One of the other reasons that we propose that the blood-brain barrier might be involved in allowing immune cells and virus to access the nervous system and cause these symptoms we're seeing. There is a huge amount of interest to find out what it must feel like from the healthcare perspective. In other words, from someone who's on the front line, what does it feel like when you're there inside the hospital while all of this is happening? And I appreciate you're, you're in the Atlantic region, so you know, you've had your bubble going for a long time, but what's the feeling like, that trepidation that at any given moment, COVID-19 might not only appear inside of your institution, but also might spread like wildfire, like we've seen in other areas of Canada. I think it's worth noting the feeling that we as healthcare professionals experienced early on when COVID was first starting to present. When patients with COVID were first starting to present for medical care, that was a very stressful time. And in many ways, it has remained so. Uh, early on, it was unclear just how contagious the virus was. The media reports of severe disease had everybody on edge. I know individuals with a compromised immune system who were working on the front line who had a very heightened sense of anxiety. And, and that's difficult when going to work each day, trying to do the best for the patients that you're caring for. Changes have been made in nearly all aspects of how we operate in the hospital and interact with patients, not just in the operating room. So for example, mandatory masks and eye protection help us from spreading disease between healthcare providers and patients. And there's certainly more emphasis on proper hand hygiene and hand washing. In neurosurgery specifically in the operating room, we perform procedures where we access the brain through the base of the nose and respiratory tract and 
as I'm sure you can imagine, we take a number of precautions to help prevents the spread of disease. The operations in the hospital slowed down for quite some time. Wait lists for elective procedures have increased in length as a result, but thankfully um, in Nova Scotia, our rates have been low and that's, we're lucky that we've had the bubble. We've had, we have a small number of neurosurgery residents in uh, our program. So those are physicians who are doing subspecialty training uh, in brain and spine surgery. And so we actually worked as independent teams to help decrease the interaction with each other. So in case one resident got sick, we wouldn't lose everyone for periods of treatment or isolation. Do you believe that what we're seeing in terms of the changes to accommodate what is happening with respect to COVID-19 could possibly lead to an improvement in overall healthcare in the future. And I know that I'm asking you to put on that Oracle's hat or look in the crystal ball, but the reality is, is it's people like you who are going to lead our next generation for healthcare in this country. I want people to understand where do you see us at this moment and where can we go? as a result of this particular pandemic? I think we've learned a lot in the past year. As we previously mentioned, there's been a large number of changes that have been challenging in some respects, but have advanced the way we deliver healthcare. As mentioned, improved hand hygiene and hygiene compliance, use of personal protective equipment to help prevent spread of disease. But probably one of the biggest benefits or I think positives to come of this is what you're doing here with your podcast. That's dissemination of scientific information that ultimately helps benefit everyone, including the public, all different types of knowledge users, not just scientists, not just doctors or nurses, but the general public as well. It's bringing the concept of medicine and healthcare and the fact that we all have a role to play to the forefront of everyone's mind. One of the biggest challenges or changes that's resulted from the pandemic has has been a shift toward virtual virtual or electronic teaching and education delivery, not just dissemination of media, although that's that's certainly very important as well. Every other day, there are in, informational webinars that are being delivered free uh, online on topics uh, ranging uh, anywhere from information about vaccines to, you know, in my case webinars on neurosurgery. It's been an invaluable resource during the pandemics. And so I hope these types of forms of education persist. However, there is definitely something to be said about going to conferences in person and interacting with your peers and bonding, obviously. We hope those will resume as well. I want to finish by answering a question I've received quite often over the last few weeks. It has to do with the rise of the SARS-CoV-2 variants and whether they will ruin our chances to end the pandemic with vaccines. Now first, you have to know, all viruses mutate, and that can lead to the formation of variants. Most variants do not change the function of the virus, but the ones that do can alter the way the virus attacks our bodies. The mutations that are of the greatest interest to vaccine effectiveness are found in the spike protein. If you've ever seen the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus, then you've seen the spike protein. It's the knobby part protruding from the surface. And as you've probably noticed, spike proteins are all over the virus itself. The reason variants in the spike protein are so concerning is that it is the protein that is made by all of the COVID-19 vaccines. As we heard from Peter Hotez earlier this season, 
The vaccines are designed in the lab so that you never have to deal with the actual coronavirus during vaccination. Now, the reason behind using the spike protein is that it is huge. And when the body sees it, there are a large variety of options for the immune system to memorize. This ensures that if there are one, two, or even five mutations in the protein, there's little chance that that particular variant is going to escape recognition during the immune response. Researchers were ready for that particular type of mutation, and that's why it's not happening here. But there is another problem. Because the variant might be recognized by the immune system, but not stopped. It's a phenomenon known as partial neutralization, and in some cases of infection, such as dengue, HIV, and the first SARS virus, there is the potential for an increase or enhancement of infection. And that could end up being life-threatening. In the case of SARS-CoV-2, the vaccine will give us full neutralization against the original lineage, but the fear has been that a variant might be able to utilize partial neutralization as a weapon against us. Thankfully, right from the beginning of COVID-19 vaccine development, this fear has been at the forefront of the minds of researchers. They wanted to be sure to avoid any potential for enhancement. As the vaccines were developed and tested in trials, sure enough, there was no sign of this problem. While the vaccines will still help us fight off variants in the future and not lead to enhancement, there is a benefit in the form of boosters so that we can absolutely prevent any chance of a return to what we went through in 2020. These boosters would probably align with another regular shot we tend to get, the influenza vaccine. When it comes to that virus, dominating variants happen at least once, if not more times a year. So while we may end up with cold, flu, and COVID season for the foreseeable future, it's still going to be so much better than what we've already suffered to date. And there you have it. I want to thank everyone who asked a question, and I hope you have gained some further insight into how COVID-19 is far more than a respiratory infection and how important it is for you to prevent it. Now, if you didn't hear your question, make sure to let me know by tweeting me at jatetro or sending me an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. And if you want to leave me a message, just head over to speakpipe.com slash sass, that's S-A-S-S, and leave me a voice message. Next week, we're going to mark International Women's Day with an interview on the effects of COVID-19 on women in healthcare. Of all the interviews on COVID-19 I've done, this one may be the most important, even if one of your loved ones isn't working in healthcare. You really need to hear it. And that's why it's best to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're proudly part of the Curious Cast family and are available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. And be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to Mark McLean. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Dela Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Greg Schott. Have a great week. Stay safe. And as always, make sure to show them some sass. <laughs>